Welcome, it's good to see everybody here this afternoon. We're um, almost finishing up a series called The Searching Heart. Uh, The concept of this series is that our heart automatically searches whether we want it to or not for certain things out there. Last week we talked about our heart searches for beauty. Uh, We want to be adored, we want to be admired, we want to be seen. Uh, So our heart just consistently searches through it and through our appearance we think that that's the way we're going to be able to receive it. But then we opened up scripture to talk about the concept of beauty and how you're going to be admired, adored, and seen. And it's often not what we think it is in regards to what the world says it is. Our heart consistently searches for love, another very popular concept that we all want, we all desire. And as our heart is searching for this, we're going to find it under any circumstances, but we often try to find it in the wrong avenues, the different avenues. Our heart searches for an identity. We will come up with an identity um, under any circumstances. It's unacceptable to live this life and not be uh, somebody. We just, we can't live with that. Therefore, life is rich, and whether we're believers or not, whether we believe that we're going to go to heaven when we die, or whether we believe we're going to be nothing when we die, we still want to be something on this earth. Our heart has an automatic searches for different things. The one we're going to look at today is, number one, our heart searches for happiness, We will find it, whether we like it or not. We'll even look in the wrong things. If it's there, we'll go after it. But what does the Bible say? If God is, if we have searches inside of our heart and we're looking for something, we want to know what the Bible says in regards to, if you're going to be happy, this is what you need to do, or this. There's always going to be a different offer that's going to be on the table. And if happiness is a heart's cry, if happiness is a drive, if happiness is a mission, which it is, what does the Bible say about it? This summer, we're going to look at uh, what sinful nature teaches us about happiness. Sinful nature says, hey, I can tell you the concept of how to get happy. And then we're going to look at what the Bible teaches about happiness. And at the end, we're going to talk about how to get happiness, how to get joy. So let's look at the first one, what the sinful nature teaches about joy and happiness. Number two, our sinful nature teaches us that joy comes by accumulation and circumstances. Accumulation. Happiness is like a cup. That if you can fill the cup up and make it overflow, then you will have this joy that is so deep, so strong, and so powerful. So accumulation would be more pleasure, more recreation, more money, more entertainment, more power, more position, more achievements, more possessions, more prestige, more freedom. If I could just be free to do whatever I want to do. If the Bible restricts me whatsoever, let's throw it away because I need more freedom and less rather than less if I'm going to get joy, more wealth, more respect. If I can just have my cup full, then joy will come my way. This is what my nature, our nature, teaches, teaches us. Also comes from circumstances. What's circumstances? Better health. If I'm going through a disease, if I'm going through a sickness, if I just did not, was not going through that right now, then my life would be overcome with joy and be full. But do you remember when you were 20 years old? <laughs> and you might have had complete health, but it wasn't health then. It was something else that was still taking that joy necessarily out of us. So it's not the circumstances that give you joy, but our nature says it's got to be the circumstances. If I can have a better relationship, better relationships with my mate, better relationships with my children, if I could have a better situation, if I could have a better job, if I could have a better environment, 
what's driving this hunger for happiness and joy from a, a worldly perspective or even from um, my inward nature perspective is accumulation and circumstances. But we were created, created in the image of God. Does God have another concept of how we're going to get a cup overflown with joy? He does. Let's see what the Bible says about joy. Number three, the Bible teaches that accumulation and circumstances have nothing to do with deep, life-satisfying joy. I remember raising my children and when they were young, and my youngest child in particular, if I told her to do something, she would do the opposite of what I'd tell her to do. You need to go to bed. That means get wild, get crazy. I'm going to do anything but fall asleep as of right. Now you do the direct opposite. Well, God wants to be very, very clear in his word. And when it comes to clear and clarity in his word between our old nature and our new nature that is found in him, accumulation and circumstance, God's going to do the opposite direction. Something completely different that if you want joy, it's not going to come from accumulation and it's not going to come from circumstances whatsoever. So let's look at the spear of joy. Let's look at the kind of the tip of the sword of joy. Hebrews 12 says this, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him did what? Endured the cross, scorning its shame. One thing you get through scripture is you get the word that, you know, you should have happiness. You should have joy. In fact, it's one of the fruits of the spirit that should comes out of you. But you also get something else. You get persecution. You get suffering. You get pain. In fact, let's look at the disciples. Here Jesus is speaking to his disciples, teaching his disciples, training his disciples. And in John chapter um, 17, he makes a prayer for his disciples, knowing what they're going to go through. And look at his prayer. But now I come to you so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. What is Christ's joy? Christ had joy, what, before he went to the cross. You see the, the happiness? You see a situation? You see a circumstance? And you see how would joy fit into that formula? How would joy fit into that formula? I mean, these disciples are going to be robbed. They're going to be tortured. They're going to be persecuted. They're going to be put to death. If you read through the stories of what took place with the disciples, it's horrific things. But the topic of joy is still on the table. What's Jesus talking about? I love this story in John chapter 21. These are Jesus' last words to his disciples. And as he's talking to his disciples, he looks at Peter and says, let me tell you how you are going to die. This is a conversation they have. John 21. When you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and when someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would, what? Glorify God. Well, is this a, an encouraging conversation? <laughs> it wasn't necessarily to Peter. He's like, well, what Jesus, you said, follow you. And, and you're, supposed to, you know, you're supposed to give us freedom. You're supposed to give us salvation. And now what you're doing is you're telling me this kind of death that I'm going to be strung out, led, and die. And was he strung out, led, and died? Yes, on a cross upside down, according to history. 
And so Peter is sitting here listening to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith that says, for the joy that is set before me, I endured the cross. I'm praying you have that same amount of joy, and this is what's going to happen to you. And Peter looks at him and goes, here's his response, John 21. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, which would be John. When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? (laughs) You're telling me that I am going to die for your glory. You tell me I'm going to die for your name. He instantly wanted to throw it off of himself. Well, that doesn't sound like something that I really want to go through, want to do. What about him? And starts to even ask Jesus those questions. Jesus is talking about a joy that is so far beyond accumulation, a joy that is so far beyond your circumstances, and this is what the Bible is proclaiming. So what is that joy, and how do you get it? Number four, Christians will experience a deep joy to the degree that they can grasp three different things. So I want this joy that's beyond situations. I want this joy that's beyond circumstances. Grasp what things? I'm just going to give them to you right now as we talk about them. Our bad things turn out for good. So Peter, this is what's going to happen to you. You can hang up on a cross upside down. But your bad things will turn out for good. Our good things can never be lost, and our best things are yet to come. These are the three principles that go beyond all of our situation, all of our circumstances, and everything that we think is out there that we could grasp and get that would give us the thing that our heart so desperately desires. Let's look at Romans eight twenty-eight, and we'll work off this passage from Paul. And we know that all things, all things, God works for good to those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, then who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Number five, our bad things turn out for good. Our bad things turn out for good. Do you know what's interesting is that verse does not say that we will not have bad things if we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior. Many religions and many people even preach that, that if you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, do you know what's going to take place? Everything is going to be good in your life. In fact, I go to Africa, and when I go to Africa, I teach the pastors, and they say, you're coming from America, the most richest country in the world. Do you know why you guys are the most richest country in the world? This is Africa speaking. is because you guys have God money. And I'm like, God money? What do you mean God money? He goes, have you ever seen your coins? It says, in God we trust. And if we trust, money is going to come our way. And I will tell you that that's a religion that is driving Africa. That's a religion that's driving many churches, even Bible-speaking churches. But this verse doesn't say this. This verse literally says, And we know that all things God works together for good. In other words, all things are going to come your way even if you're a Christian. Cancer could be coming your way. Death is coming your way. You're not not going to get out of it. 
suffering, persecution, trials. We can do a list of all the things that the world has. We're going to get those too, and sometimes we're going to even get them to a greater degree. But there's something that's going to happen to the all things that are coming your way. And do you know what the thing is? Is that God is going to change them for good to those who love the Lord. Now let me tell you what this verse is not saying. It does not say that circumstances are bad, but they will get better. It's not saying that, because remember, joy doesn't come from our circumstances. It is also does not say that bad things are good things, because bad things are not good things. Bad things are bad things. But what this verse says is that God will take the bad things and he will work them for good in the totality of your life and others for the purpose of his glory. What we have is we have a God that is looking down on us. And when he is looking down on us, he knows what I want better than I know what I want. Specifically, a lot better than he knows what I want. So what's he going to do for me? He's going to say, Mike, I'm going to tell you what you want, and you might not think it's what you want, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. And the reason why is because I'm looking at the total totality of your eternity and your existence here on this earth. Therefore, when these things come that you look at and you say, this is just not, this is just not good, God's like, I am going to make it good for my name, for my glory, and for your good. I will manage those things that come into your life for the purpose of blessing you more than you can possibly even comprehend. Now, you don't get to wait one week or even 10 minutes. Sometimes it's like we pray for something, and it's like, God's going to turn this for good, and 10 minutes later, it's like, God hasn't turned it for good. You don't get to wait one week. You don't get to wait two weeks, three months, four months, because God works in the totality of our life, and he looks at the entire picture all the way from eternity to right now, and he is managing the wild, evil, crazy things that are coming our way for the purpose of according to this verse, of our good and the glory of his name. But he also knows something else, um, not necessarily about you or about the totality of the mission. He knows something else about the people around you. He knows their heart. He knows their mind. He knows their desires. He knows the location of their souls. And so if something is taking place that is difficult for me and suffering is happening or trials are taking place in my life, God might be using me to minister and proclaim his name to others that are around. If you ever opened up the Bible, every one of those disciples were persecuted. Every one of those disciples were killed, were martyred, except John. And then Paul, who wrote a lot of the New Testament, you know what happened to him? He was beheaded, but all the way through his life, it's trials after trials after trials after trials. If I want to feed on the concept of joy, who do I read? I read the guy who went through it all, and what does he say? I count it all joy to serve Jesus Christ. It's a guy that his trials were so far beyond what he accumulated because he didn't accumulate anything. It was so far beyond his circumstances because his circumstances, really from an earthly perspective, didn't like, look like things were necessarily turning out for good. But I'm reading him. You are reading him. And I'm thanking God for his trials today and what he went through today so I can understand how God works and how God functions in my life, specifically even right now. And we can go through every person in the Bible 
that suffered persecution. God was working their trials for good, and Charles Spurgeon said it. I don't think he was the original person. But he said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed that plants the church today. It is the seeds that plants the church and will cause it to grow today. The blood of the martyrs is where you see the beautiful hand of God and the glory of God being proclaimed. All these things are coming that are evil, but God is changing them for our good and for his glory. Let's read the verse, Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. I want to look at this word works. The word is not God worked all things for good. It's works. And that means it's a continual action that takes place. A continual action that takes place. Well, what does works mean? Uh, this is what it means. It means to create and eliminate to place and replace, to connect and regroup, to shape and to forge, to press and to stretch, a mover and an operator, a controller and a guide, and a range and an influencer. So if I just look at the definition of the word works, and, and then I think, well, this is what God is doing in my life. He's placing and replacing, connecting and regrouping. He is shaping and forging. There's a lot of details that are going on in my life right now. And there's a lot of action that is going on in my life right now. And it's not about, it's not me, my mind doing it. It's God doing things through the situations that are coming. See, what happens is this what drove Jesus to the cross and say, I counted all joy for going to the cross. Why? Because I see what it's going to do. I see what it's going to accomplish. And it's all going to be Good, therefore it will be complete. Works. He works in totality. He works with an eternal mind. He works from his perspective, not mine. Everything I see is limited to the finite mind. Everything God sees is so far beyond, and he will take it all and work it for his good, my good, others' good, and his glory. In fact, God will not take away my comfort without giving me something better. Did you know that? Every time your comfort goes away, he will give you something better. But we do got to look at the verse. There is a clause. God takes all things work together for good to those who love him and are called to his purpose. So with this clause, I only get to think of, you know what, I want my life to turn into an amazing life of blessing. There's a command there. Love God being called to his purpose. Everything that comes my way, I don't have to question anymore. I just have to question if I love God because I'm falling into a category. If I love God, all things work together for good for the those who love God. So if I see something coming after me, I can say, that specific thing that is coming after me, I can relax because there's somebody else in control and it's not me and that person, that God, is working it for my good. Love God, call to his purpose. We just have to ask the question, am I in that category? The disciples were thinking, I love God. Maybe I'm going to have to hang up on a cross upside down. But I will tell you, it's all going to work out for my good and his glory and the people around me. Number six, the other one, our good things can never be lost. I've really enjoyed raising my children. I have two daughters, um, an 18-year-old and a 15-year-old right now. And I tell you, I count it complete joy. And I think the coolest thing about raising children is that they are my children, connected with me. And um, 
they'll always be my children. And my daughter went down to uh, San Diego at the 1st of September, the end of August, and she's been gone for two months. She's never been gone for two months. And I'll tell you that things changed around her house a little bit when she was, was gone. And it's like, oh, there's not as much noise. There's not as much craziness. There's not as much action. She seems like she just brought a slew of, you know, young people in her house and they would, you know, run through her house and those things. And as she's gone, you know, there's just not as much that was taking place. Well, um, she wanted to surprise her cousin, Josiah, um, of his birthday and, uh, this week. So she asked me to buy a plane ticket. And I'm like, buy a plane ticket to surprise Josiah for, what, two days? I said, okay, we'll buy a plane ticket. You can come and you can surprise him. So she flew in on Thursday night, and she flew in at 11.30, came into Portland at 11.30, and this was all planned. I didn't plan it. This is their behavior, but 11.30 she came in. It takes, you know, a good hour and a half, 12 o'clock, 1.30. We're getting into town about 1.30. It's already been planned that she's going to show up to Josiah's house at 1.30, and Josiah's mom is supposed to make sure the dog doesn't bark as she walks into his room at 1.30 in the middle of the night and starts singing happy birthday to Josiah. So he doesn't plan anything the next day. So, of course, her and her sister and her cousin all walk up there and sing this big old song that t- takes place. And I think Josiah's like, what in the world is going on? Is this a dream or what is it? But I will tell you that we woke the entire house up. The dog didn't bark, though, but we woke the entire house up. And then the start of the next day, I tell you, it's been party after party after party of just the excitement of her being home and the excitement of celebrating birthdays. Romans 8, 28 says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. You are sealed in Christ, just like I am sealed and everything comes back to normal when my daughter comes home. We are sealed in Christ. That relationship will not be broken. That relationship will not be disturbed. Our accumulation of things and also our circumstances that come our way, we have a security above all of them. And even when the disciples are hearing this, yes, I might die, but there's a security that's above all of them. No matter how great I suffer, God has predestined me before the beginning of time. He has called me, justified, and glorified me. So no matter what takes place, I can hang on to that. No matter what opposition you face, no matter how much you struggle, no matter how much everything just crumbles in, there's one thing that will always remain the same. And I will tell you that through Scripture, people's lives crumbled in. But the thing that remained the same is that God will absolutely never leave you. And at the end of the verse... And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. That God that will never leave you says that he called, justified, and glorified. That's all the past tense. He says, this is what I think about you. I have called you, past tense. I'm not calling you now. I have justified you. You're clean, past tense. That's the way I view you now. And he says, you are glorified. You know, you start thinking, well, there's some day that I'm going to stand with God and I will be glorified then. He says, no, in my eyes for you right now, you are glorified, watched completely clean. I see you, I know you, and I love you. That's what it means. And this is what the disciples held on to, is that we are sealed and we are loved under any circumstances, and this is my source 
of joy. God never had it in his itinerary or in his plan to bless you out of an earth that he cursed. He had it in his plan to bless you with the relationship that God has for you and the amazing love that he has given to you. Therefore, all things that you have, all the bad things that come your way will work out for good, but the things that you have, which is Christ and Christ crucified and the salvation being justified, being glorified in him, is there and sealed, and you will never lose it, no matter what takes place and no matter what happens. Therefore, how can we ever you know, even feel discouraged, defeated, self-accusing, incriminating, unworthy, undeserving, unwanted, or rejected? Those are words that we do feel, but as we feel them, there is hope. What is there hope for? There's hope in the sealing of the relationship that Christ will never, ever leave us under any circumstances. Number seven, our best things are yet to come. You know, I'm rafting the Grand Canyon in uh, August of 2021, and do you know how many days I'm going to be on the river? Some people say 16. I say a year and a half. I'll be on that river a year and a half. And the reason why I'd be on that river a year and a half is because when I put on that river, I got a permit for that, which took me 20 years prior to me going before. It took me six years now to get. I got a permit, and now I get a dream about it for a year and a half before I get the 16 days. You know what happens with our joy? Our joy bubbles under our expectations. It's, it's, it's what we think about in the future. It's what we desire in the future. That's what makes us happy. Yeah, I'll go to the river for 16 days, and you know what? It won't be nearly as fun as me thinking about it for a year and a half. With our expectations, there's some of our greatest jewels. It's some of our greatest things that we have. And our best things are already, are yet to come. Yes, I've given you the cross. Yes, I've given you salvation. Yes, I've given you life in me, but you still got some things that are even better. What things are better? Romans 8, 28 says, what then shall you say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? You know what that verse says? That verse says, I have given you the greatest jewel I have, and that greatest jewel I have, this is God speaking, is my son Jesus Christ. What would I withhold from you if I did not withhold my son? Your best things are even yet to come. So just looking back, joy does not come from what we don't have. Joy comes from what we have in Christ. And what, kind of, what do we have in Christ? We can ask the question. Our bad things turn out for good. Our good things can't be lost. And our best things are yet to come. This is the joy that drove the disciples forward into extreme amount of persecution. This is the joy that lifted them above their situation above their circumstances, and above what was taking place in their life. This is a joy that was so thick and so deep in their heart that they knew that they couldn't lose it. So when their lives were wasted away, they said, but I still have it. It will not be lost, and therefore I will use it as my source to fill me up. So the challenge would be to all of us, even as I read the word to all of us, that our joy doesn't come from accumulation, it doesn't come from organized and fixed circumstances. Our joy comes from Christ 
and Christ alone, knowing that all of our bad things turn out for good, all of our good things will not be lost, and all of our things, all the best things, are yet to come. God, we just um, thank you for the cross. God, I just pray that it would be the source of our joy, that we would go to you, God, with a, um, a broken heart, a submissive heart, a heart that desires more of you uh, and less of the world. God, we are tempted in this world. We are tempted to bring accumulation to our life and tempted to change our circumstances, tempted to even pray that our circumstances change for the purpose of us having joy. God, I just pray that you will just um, let us look past all that and understand that the source of joy comes from you and you alone. Help us to feed on it. Help us to love it. Help us to embrace it. In Christ's name, amen.